Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Welcome uh, to Conversations at the Carter Center tonight. We're delighted to have you all with us to talk about some issues of great concern here in our state. Uh, we'll begin our evening's activities in just a moment, but we wanted to welcome some guests we have this evening, uh, including our many supporters of the center and all of you. Uh, we'd like to also welcome uh, students who are joining us from Emory University and from North Cobb High School. So welcome here as well, and hopefully this will be one of, uh, one of your civic lessons that you'll, you'll take back with you and study with your friends. We encourage uh, you to learn more about our Conversations event. It's a series we hold every year here. It starts with President Mrs. Carter uh, kicking it off, and over the course of the year, we have several other conversation events. And in them, we usually feature some of the work done uh, by our staff and colleagues and friends around the world. Very interesting events, and we encourage you to take a look. And you can subscribe through the cartercenter.org conversations. Uh, a fact sheet for tonight's topic and the bios of the panelists was on your seat, so I will not introduce them in detail. You can read it for yourself. Uh, they're all very uh, distinguished people in their own rights, and uh, encourage you to take a look at that before we go. This is a conversational event, so we're asking that uh, you give us your questions as well. Uh, as you came in, you were handed three by five cards. There will be people going through the aisles, up and down the aisles, that will take your cards and we brought up here and we will have a discussion with our panelists. So please uh, feel free to, to ask anything you want, write it on that card and let somebody see your hand and, and we will try to get to your question, uh, to all the questions as best we can. This evening's event is being webcast live on the Carter Center website and it will be archived. So if any of your families or friends or colleagues would be interested in what's going on and many are, there's a lot of eyes on Georgia right now and how we handle our situations down here. Um, so it will be available in the archive. At this point, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, our boss and, and our inspiration here, Mrs. Rosalind Carter, who has very deep roots in the Georgia mental health system and will share some of those uh, observations with us tonight. Mrs. Carter. Well, it's really great to see so many people here to learn about the situation in Georgia now. And I have one um, announcement to make before I begin my remarks, and that is um, just to tell you that I have written a book on mental health, <laughs> and I finished it two days before Christmas, and it'll be out in May. So this is my little advertisement. <laughs> yeah. I want to welcome all of you here tonight. Um, we're really pleased to have you, and we have an important program for you, one that's very close to my heart and something that I've worked on for so long. Our topic is the current crisis in Georgia's public mental health system, which um, unfortunately is all too familiar theme in Georgia these days. I first became involved campaigning for my husband when he ran for governor. There had been a big expose of Central State Hospital in Milledgeville. It was overcrowded and just terrible conditions. It was happening all across the country. Um, and then um, the mental health, mental health uh, centers, um, Community Mental Health Centers Act was passed, which called for um, 
putting people in community centers, at, taking them out of the institutions into the community centers. We called it um, deinstallization. And um, when I started campaigning, I knew nothing about this because I had not focused on mental health issues at all. So when I began campaigning, every day it seemed like I had somebody ask me, what would your husband, if elected governor, do for people with mental illness, for my aunt or for my son or for my um, father or brother who's at Central State? Well, I became really concerned about it. And I asked Jimmy, he was getting the same kind of questions. And um, people were um, uncertain about what was happening. They were frightened. And one day I was standing at a cotton mill. I was campaigning in Atlanta at a cotton mill at 4.30 in the morning, um, giving brochures, Jimmy Carter brochures, to people uh, on the shift change. Those are coming off from work and those going to work. And I saw this woman coming from um, the uh, cotton mill. She was weary, kind of slumped over a little bit, had lint in her hair and all over her clothes. And I said, I hope you're going home and get some sleep today. And she said, I hope so too. But you see, we have a mentally ill daughter at home. And my husband, Sarah, didn't make ends meet for us. So I stay home with her in the daytime while he works. And he stays with her at night while I work. Well, it just, it just touched me so because I'd been hearing these things over and over. And so that very same day, I was campaigning in Swainsboro, Georgia. And this was a very disorganized campaign because Jimmy got in late when a leading Democratic candidate had a heart attack. And we lost that year because we didn't have, this was the first time he ran for governor. And we didn't have but about eight weeks, I think, to campaign. But I heard he was coming to town. As I said, it was a disorganized campaign. And so I stayed because I had just been in the car with one of my sons driving from one town to another, stopping, get, passing out brochures. And um, I stayed and had a big rally. And I got in the back of the room. He didn't know I was there. And I stood in line with people that were shaking hands with him. And um, when he got to me, I don't know about you, but receiving lines are part of my life. And I will reach for somebody while I'm talking to the one in front of me. Well, Jimmy did that. He reached for my hand and when he, and I got in front of him, he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, I came to see what you're going to do for people with mental illness when you're governor of Georgia. <laughs> and he said, we're going to have the best program in the country, and I'm going to put you in charge of it. <laughs> well, of course he didn't put me in charge of it. But we had um, the Governor's Commission to Improve Services to the Mentally and Emotionally Handicapped. And that was the beginning of my education about mental illnesses. And we did some good, good things in Georgia. Um, and when I was thinking about this tonight, I knew that um, Stan Jones was going to be here because his wife was here. And um, Stan, who's sitting right here, was a college student that came and worked with me on mental health and has been, I've been working with him ever since. Beverly Long, that some of you may know, there were, I think there were five advocates for mental health issues in Atlanta. They all descended on me, all five of them. That was literally, this was a time when nobody talked about mental illnesses. Nobody would admit having a mentally ill person in the family. And um, it, it was just a really tough time to be in the mental health field. But we plugged away at it. 
And one thing that um, I think Stan will back me up on this because I looked at a book I wrote uh, later. Um, and in, when Jimmy was governor, we established 134 community mental health centers now. These were not comprehensive community mental health centers. Sometimes it was a telephone in an office, but we tried to get one in a, on Main Street, a busy place in a community, a place where people could go to find out how to get help. And uh, what I was, I was really pleased about what we did. Things did eventually get better, and Georgia at one time had a public mental health system that functioned well and was ranked above average for our nation. Um, and tonight, John Gates is here. John Gates is another that I've worked on for a long time, worked with for a long time. He was the head of Georgia Regional Hospital, is that right? He'll tell you anyway, because he's gonna talk about um, how we got to be, to having a really good mental health system in Georgia. Unfortunately, now we're back in a crisis situation. And um, to be clear, and I think I have to say this because the deterioration didn't start in this administration, so I'm not talking about anybody particularly, but it's just a, more than a decade of neglect. And there have been questionable policy decisions and budget redirects away from uh, community centers to hospitalization. Um, and if we're ever going to get out of this situation, we have to refocus attention on services in the community that are organized around promoting recovery. And today we know that people can recover from mental illnesses. And the, the um, system will have to include services that ensure stable housing. These are things that are really important for people who have mental illnesses. Employment opportunities included supported employment. Expanded support services including peer supports, which you'll hear about later tonight, and a sound system of patients moving out of hospitals in a timely manner and into effective community-based services. Andrew Penn from the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law is going to talk about some innovative programs, things that other states are doing, um, even in the face of similar budget um, constraints like we have in our state. Charles Willis will describe one of those, one really innovative program that began in Georgia. It was developed here and it's being now replicated, replicated across the nation and even internationally, certified peer specialists. This is what we are going to hear about tonight. Um, and um, again, let me welcome you and say how pleased I am for you to be here tonight so that you will be familiar with what's going on in our state. And we're probably gonna need your help um, to get um, things going for a really good system so you can talk up how much we all need to do to be sure we have a good system in Georgia uh, to help those who are um, living with mental illnesses. Thank you for being here and I'm gonna turn the program back over to Tom. So. Thank you, Mrs. Carter. Um, before we get started tonight, we thought we would go through a little bit of data, gotta do a little data uh, in any meeting, and um, tell you a little bit about 
um, how we got involved in this. Uh, the mental health program at the Carter Center works on a variety of issues, generally at the national level and, and somewhat internationally. Um, we work uh, often behind the scenes um, in quiet ways, um, working with partners all over the nation. Uh, this was a little bit unusual for us to get involved at this level uh, of, of uh, detailed activity at the local level. Uh, but we became quite interested in what was going on here and felt it um, important enough to lend our voice. In fact, we, before we engaged in all of these activities, we talked privately with a number of friends and, and colleagues around the state and the city, including John Gates sitting here tonight and others, Daryl Gay's here. Um, do we offer any value added? Um, we were concerned that there had been uh, over two years of rather staggering articles in the AJC about uh, suspicious and unexplained deaths in our hospitals, and we were gravely concerned that there wasn't a lot of traction um, on doing something about that. The advice we got from our friends and colleagues was yes, get involved, and get involved particularly at beginning to mobilize some of our friends in the community, which is what we've done. The, uh, and we have lots of friends, and some of them are here tonight, who've worked tirely, tirelessly with us on these issues, the Georgia Advocacy Office, um, Bronco, I see you out in the crowd, and, and a number of other people um, who have uh, inspired and, and uh, led in some of the efforts and gotten us to where we are today. The, uh, there's gonna be a number of, of uh, things talked about tonight or referred to different kinds of lawsuits, and we're not here to get into that sort of thing, um, but to tell you they exist and they're going on uh, as we speak. We uh, became actively involved um, in a more formal way as a friend of the court in uh, February 2009 uh, and have engaged in a, a series of conversations between the state, the Department of Justice legal team, um, and our advocacy uh, group. Here's some of the, the symptoms. If you're looking at the symptoms of a system in decline, this is a case in point. These are numbers of admissions uh, to state hospitals in selected states around the union. Um, they are numbers of admissions, not admission rates. If it was admission rates, it would be higher, uh, be off the scale. And what we see here is Georgia um, has a roughly four times the number of admissions to our state hospitals in the period 2002 to 2005 than the state of California, roughly three times our size. Something's going on here. Uh, this type of pattern will often reflect problems in the community system. The irony is these high admission rates uh, speak more to what's not going on in the community than what's really going on in the hospitals. It also reflects a pattern of recycling of people, meaning people come in, they get stabilized, they go out in the community, services in the community are inadequate to follow up, and they have to get readmitted. So this is uh, the pattern we were looking at. Um, and this is from an article from 2009. I should point out, by the way, the other states, North Carolina and Texas, which also spike here, are having similar problems in their community systems, particularly North Carolina, uh, which has had a, a, a system meltdown. Um, here's another area that reflects maybe why we've gotten to the, to the place that we are, particularly in the area of, of practices within the hospital system. We have this tremendous demand on admissions, but resources in real dollar terms, in fact, are going backwards. So you're having a clash here between an increased service demand and a, a decreased ability to meet that demand in an effective way.
I mentioned that there is litigation underway. Um, the suit, uh, one suit is a suit filed by the Department of Justice called the Civil Rights for Institutional Persons Act. It looks at, at conditions in institutions uh, where there may be reason to believe there are, are civil rights violations. The Department of Justice uh, runs the CRIPA suits, uh, as we call them, um, and their, their team has been down here on a number of occasions visiting virtually all of our state hospitals. Concurrently, we have a case pending called the Olmstead case. The Olmstead case is famous for a lot of reasons, one of which it's a Florida, uh, Georgia case. The original Olmstead case was filed in 1999. And what it says, and I'm oversimplifying it, is that people who are living in an institution when deemed appropriate for discharge should be discharged in a timely manner to the services that they, that they need. It was a case filed against the state of Georgia. It's in its 10th year. We had a 10th anniversary celebration earlier in 99. Uh, uh, and there is still not an implementation plan uh, yet. Uh, hopefully we're getting pretty close, uh, but there hasn't been. So you have these two ongoing parallel processes. The Department of Justice looking at the uh, conditions within the institutions and a group in the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights, totally different division, uh, uh, organization, that's looking at the community system and receiving people in the community in a timely manner. Uh, these were some of the statements that were made recently. Some of you probably saw the article uh, in, Janu in late January from Alan Judd. Alan was one of the two writers that wrote the very long series, um, A Hidden Shame, in uh, Georgia's mental health system. Uh, very good investigative reporters, and they continue to, uh, uh, Alan anyway, Andy has since retired, unfortunately, but Alan is following the case. And i just point out that the, one of the biggest concerns are these four areas of priority, prevention of suicide, assaults, choking, and more effective emergency medical treatment. Uh, the Department of Justice filed in, in January of 210 uh, seeking an uh, appointment of an independent monitor, and that's pending before the courts. What does this all mean for us? Um, it means that the, the um, courts, according to the recommendation from justice, is that people need to get discharged from our hospitals. And some of that is happening. Um, but they need to go to the right places, or we repeat the cycle that we showed earlier. Uh, and that's, that's uh, where the problem lies. We're going to conclude right now for those, um, that information and get to the discussion. I think the discuss discussion will be far more relevant uh, to informing you on things that can be done, have been done, times when we didn't work so well and we got better, uh, and maybe give us some uh, roadmaps to how we can be uh, get better again. And I invite my colleagues to come up. Can you all hear me now? Good.
We apologize for the delay while we accommodate uh, technology. Turn off that cell phone. And turn off your cell phones. Uh, as I mentioned, you have the bios on all our uh, participants, our panel members today, and I urge you to take a look at them. Our first panelist that's going to present tonight is an old friend and colleague, as well as uh, a panelist. Uh, John Gates has those deep roots we were talking about in the Georgia mental health system, and he's going to talk to us about that tonight. He was also a former director of the mental health program here at the Carter Center, so he's alumni as well. Uh, and John, you were the director of the Division of Mental Health, uh, Mental Retardation and Substance Abuse uh, for a number of years, but you held a number of other posts within the state, and you've seen it when it uh, was in bad shape, and you've seen it when it improved, and perhaps you could walk us through um, those periods of time. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, first, let me say good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here, and I want to thank Mrs. Carter and Tom for inviting me to participate. Tom said I've got about five minutes, so I want to start in 1969 where, where, when I first began working <laughs> in, in Georgia and bring us forward year after year. So if I... If I <laughs> Thanks, John. Uh, in my experience, it's now 41 years uh, as uh, working in Georgia state government and serving on a number of boards of not-for-profit uh, agencies in the state. Uh, I just want to state it outright that I, I, I've come to the conclusion, as have many of the advocates that Tom alluded to, and you, that the problems in our state hospitals that have been reported, uh, as Tom said, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and have been reported in investigations by the Department of Justice, uh, my belief is you can't fix those problems by focusing all of your energies on the hospitals, that what's really required is to expand an appropriate array of services in local communities. And it's, it's my firm belief that the overwhelming majority of people with mental illnesses, <clears throat> developmental disabilities, and addictive disorders can be more effectively uh, served in their local communities if you've got the right services in place. In the 41 years I've seen, <laughs> I've seen uh, uh, bad times and I've seen better times and uh, unfortunately cycles of those again and again. Uh, and I think, as Mrs. Carter has indicated in the recent reports about the problems in our hospitals indicate, uh, we're in pretty bad time right now. And, and uh, as Mrs. Carter said, it's not, these problems haven't occurred overnight. They've occurred over years of neglect. And they won't be fixed overnight. And I think it's important for all of us to, to understand that. Uh, I want to share a little anecdote with you first and then quickly address the basic question that Tom asked me to talk about before we got here, which is totally different from what I prepared to say. But uh, <laughs> um, the personal anecdote is that I began working at 
1969 at Central State Hospital in Milledgeville, Georgia, as a psychologist. Uh, one of my first assignments was to supervise the staff in the division that, that had uh, housed about 700 people with developmental disabilities. Uh, my job was to teach the staff how to uh, work with the, uh, the, the clients there uh, to help them with their uh, personal needs, their toileting, so that they anticipate using a bathroom rather than going anywhere on the ward whenever or wherever they work. One of the other programs is to try to teach people how to feed themselves properly so that they got the benefit of their meals, rather than sitting down at the dining room table with a tray in front of them and grasping fistfuls of food, shoving those into their mouths, one after another, and then be up from the table within a minute or two. And so what we were trying to do is teach people how to supervise and get people to use a spoon appropriately. Uh, and the other major uh, undertaking was to, to get people to learn to put their clothes on and keep their clothes on all day long, rather than take them off and run around the ward naked all day long. One, and one ward in particular stands out in this uh, area for people with developmental disabilities. It was an area designed to accommodate <coughs> 30 people. When I got there that uh, <coughs> hot August day in 1969, there were 90 females on the, on the ward. Uh, the two attendants, who, staff, who were usually on duty to serve those people, kept the, kept the ward clean by hosing it down twice a day. The floor was sealed concrete with drain holes about every 15 to 20 feet. And that was the only way that uh, that, that ward got clean. They follow it up with a spray of some sort of bleach. Now, I see I'm out of time. Uh, is that the gist of? OK, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> those were bad times without any question. But they were starting to get better. Uh, Mrs. Carter had already started advocating uh, for the needs of people with mental illnesses and developmental disabilities when uh, Governor Carter was in, in office. She was making people aware of things. Federal government had funded community mental health centers. Uh, the state had embarked on a multi-year plan to build regional hospitals throughout the state and population centers to take the pressure off that remote state hospital in Millersville, which they did. Um, so there were signs that things were improving. And indeed, for a number of years, uh, they did. Uh, at Central State, uh, after several years, I happened to get appointed administrator. And these next two points is what I did at Central and what 
up here in Atlanta as the state director. Uh, what's most germane, I think, to the debate that's now going on and the issues that are taking place. What became clear to me uh, at, at the hospital was that we needed to develop a very concrete plan to move forward over a, a, a several years to meet national standards of care. And so we started talking. There's a, an entity called the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, which sets national standards. And so with my key colleagues, we said, let's strive to meet national standards. Let's set out a concrete plan. By the end of year one, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And we're going to monitor what we plan to do. We're going to meet monthly with the leadership of our various divisions and see how we're doing. It was that concrete plan and the buy-in from the staff and their belief that they could do what needed to be done. Within three years, the hospital was accredited for the first time in its 140-some-odd-year history. Landmark kind of thing. I, I cite that because of the important, the, the two elements there. Getting clear about a vision for what ought to be done, and getting leadership to buy into that, and then developing a very specific plan to get it done. Those of you who are in the business community, who, who have ever developed a business plan, know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, if, if you need to go get money to start your business, you've got to get crystal clear with who the, the, the folks or organizations that might give you the money about what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, when you're going to get it done. So that worked there. After a while, for, uh, again, puzzling reasons, I was appointed state director. And when I got to Atlanta, <laughs> and again, was oversight responsibility for the, the state hospitals and contractual responsibilities for the community-based systems that were then in place. And Georgia had approximated some very good services. What was clear was that, again, what was needed was a very concrete plan of implementation to fund an adequate array of services in all of our communities where, where they were needed. And so, again, with the buy-in of key colleagues and all stakeholders, consumers and their families, uh, providers, professional providers, advocates, and elected officials, we developed a plan that became known as the target area plan. Over X years, as of money would become available, we would expand uh, in three to four areas a year. What was important about that is that everybody wanted to be first. Uh, you know, everybody wanted to be expanded the first year. You can't, couldn't do it. Money wasn't there. But as long as everyone saw that if they supported this plan, they got behind it, even though they might have to wait two, three years, they did it. And the, and the state legislature and enlightened leadership in the governor's office once they understood the intent and the realization that this was not an endless abyss 
of requests for money without outcome. They got behind it. And I think that's what George is again missing right now. The absence of that vision of what ought to be over a limited period of time, but a couple of years, uh, and, and a clear sense of how to go about getting that done. And I, again, I go back to say, I think most of it, the money what that might become available needs to be in the communities. Think of it this way. Imagine if you found your basement flooding from a broken water pipe. Would you rush down to your basement with as many buckets as you could find in the house and spend all your energy throwing one bucket of water after another outside? Or would you first go to the water supply valve and turn off the water? I think funding the community programs is like turning off the water supply. That's the way to address these basic problems that we now have in our hospital, not by going down in the basement and pouring all of that energy into the hospitals. Thank you. I'm sorry yeah. for Thank you, John. joining me on this. Thank you very much. And I remind you all, the cards uh, that you were issued, please put your questions on it. People will be walking around collecting them and giving you additional ones if you need them. Andy, you've, uh, you've got the envious job of uh, getting a national perspective um, on mental health services in challenged states. Um, what, 47 states in the union are facing significant budget shortfalls and pressure on service delivery. Tell us uh, about some of the things you've found in the course of your work. Thank you, Tom. Uh, is this working? Yep. Good. Uh, first, I want to say just what an honor it is for me to be here and uh, to meet Mrs. Carter and President Carter. And uh, I mean, I was struck by the fact that I had, when I met you just now, I had a flashback to uh, the year I graduated law school, uh, 1977, and came to Washington, D.C idealistic, ready to go, and there were two other people who came that year, and it was you and your husband, and I distinctly remember your fighting for mental health uh, causes. I was intrigued by it, because I really didn't know anything about, uh, about the issues, and uh, you were an inspiration to me then. You and your husband and your work since then have been real inspirations to me, and I thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, first, some of the problems that are facing the adult mental health system today that, that are preventing uh, provision of good care and, and then some of the solutions to those problems. Um, many of these problems are actually uh, longstanding and they're pretty succinctly uh, stated in uh, the President's New Freedom Commission report back in 2003. One of them, of course, is, is the pariah of fragmentation of services you've got. Federal government funding the services, state and local governments implementing um, programs. Then within the state, you've got uh, lots of different agencies with varying um, responsibilities for different parts of the mental health system. Um, and how do you access, how do you, how do you coordinate it all? How do you access the services and make sure that people get precisely what they need without driving them batty, just figuring out how to, how to get what they need? Um, then, of course, you've got the decades of, of just underfunding of, of community-based services. Um, 
And then uh, the issue that I and my office has been working on a lot is just the heavy reliance for years and years on costly and unnecessary and illegal uh, segregation of people with mental illness in a full range of institutions, not just hospitals, hospitals, uh, it's the one that's always out there, but hospitals, nursing homes, adult care homes, institutions of mental disease, prisons and jails, uh, full range, full range of institutions um, that people really don't need to be in. Um, on top of all these long-standing problems, you've got today's financial crisis and um, affecting every state, not just Georgia and some states more than Georgia. Um, so what are the solutions? Um, how did states achieve the right mix of, of inpatient and community-based services and then how do they fund the necessary community-based services. Uh, I, I think we all recognize that in the present financial state of many, most states, it's, it's increasingly difficult for states to go to their, for state governors to go to their legislatures and say, cough up new money for community-based services. And it's even harder, though, uh, to justify the continued waste of money for unnecessary institutional services, expensive and unnecessary. Now's the time, really, and, and a lot of states are doing this. They're thinking, well, are we really make, making best use of our limited resources? How can they best be spent? And the obvious answer, and it's an answer that's been out there for a long time, is to stop putting the money in the institutions and putting, put it into the community. Uh, and there are a couple of steps you've got to take in doing that. You can't, you've first got to really um, figure out, well, where are, how much of our money is going to unnecessary institutional services? And then, uh, and, and again, we're not talking about just hospitals, uh, we're talking about a bunch of different institutions. And then uh, how much of that can we reallocate into the community? This, this, the funding of, in, of institutions is a great existing source of money for states to, to take from and put where they're really needed. Uh, it doesn't just save money. I think most importantly, uh, although this doesn't always get results from legislatures, it saves lives. Um, how do you go about that? There are systematic ways, and several states are doing this right now. Is first, you really need to get a specific understanding of of how many beds your hospitals really need. Uh, you know, people get afraid of, oh, they're gonna close the hospitals, they're gonna downsize the hospitals. Well, sorry, the, real, uh, the real word is right-sizing the hospitals, figuring out which beds we really need. How many beds are, are being filled just by people who shouldn't have never, should have never been admitted in the first place? And the only reason they got into the hospitals was because there weren't community crisis services to, uh, to help them before they, before they got into the hospital. Uh, then you've got to look at, well, how many people are in the hospital but have been ready to leave, and the only reason they're sticking around, stuck around, really, uh, is because there aren't the community services out there. Um, looking at that, you can then make a really reasoned assessment of how many wards can be closed. And, how much savings can be derived from the closure of those wards. And it's with each ward that's closed that real savings can be derived. These are big ticket items. Uh, the state of New York 
listed in its, its state budget, uh, its governor's budget message last year, did this kind of assessment, and they figured out, uh, I'm reading this because I, I wouldn't have remembered it otherwise, that they could do, they could close 450 beds in their state hospitals, and that would save them in the first fiscal year $16 million, in the second, second fiscal year 23, another $23 million, of which a large percentage of which they were able to translate into funding for supportive housing in the community. There's no reason Georgia can't do the same. Um, you've also, you also need to do a careful assessment of, of what kinds of community services you need and how much of them, need, how much needs to be expanded and what they're going to be costing. Another um, source of funding for these community services, it really goes hand in hand with the reallocation of, uh, of money from the, from the hospitals to the community, is the importance of maximizing available federal funds for community services. And it's primarily Medicaid, or Medicaid funds, but there's also increasingly increasing amounts of money from HUD for housing and support, supportive housing services, and there's some money from SAMHSA. But Medicaid funding is key, and Medicaid can, um, if, if structured right, your state's Medicaid plan can take advantage of funding for a full range of psychi psychiatric rehabilitation services, recovery-oriented services that focus on skills training, uh, assertive community treatment, case management services, supportive housing services, peer support services, life skills training, uh, family support services, uh, crisis services, the full range of services that are an integral part of any um, meaningful um, community system. Uh, and I, I think one of the key things is, is supportive housing, um, permanent supportive housing. And uh, it's a key service, particularly if we're dealing with people who have been institutionalized for a long time and need more, more intensive supportive services in the community. Uh, supportive housing is, is just a proven way of dealing with, with the issues. And we're talking about scattered site supportive housing, not, not trans-institutionalizing people from an institution into a housing project that has only people with disabilities in it. We're talking about putting people in their own apartments, um, a truly integrated setting in permanent apartments, not transitory, individualized services, voluntary services, services, services that the people want, not services that they must take as a condition to living in their homes. Uh, and flexible services, services that can go any range anywhere from 24-7, depending on person's needs, to uh, drop in every so often. Again, it's what a person needs and wants, and consumer choice is crucial to the success of permanent supportive housing. And it's this whole no notion of consumer buy-in that, uh, that makes supportive housing so successful, and the notion that uh, if a person has his or her own house that incentivizes that person to, to want to do well, as opposed to someone standing over their head and saying, oop, saying it's time for you to stop talking. That's what that person is saying to me. Um, <laughs> saying, uh, you've got to do this or we're going to kick you out of the program. So supportive housing works. There's a great program um, up in New York called Pathways to Housing that is just the model for, um, 
for others that have been burgeoning throughout the country. New Jersey now has a really expansive supportive housing program. San Francisco is, has one. Illinois increasingly has one. And I, I can talk on and on. I have, there's a handout outside that talk, there are two handouts that talk about supportive housing, its benefits, and how states have gone about funding them. And I will stop right now, and uh, maybe I can provide some more information during question and answer. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. I remind people to use your cards if you want to get some more ideas out on the table. Uh, we wanted to leave time to get your ideas out as well. Charles, you've been, uh, you've been in, in the forefront of one of the real innovations that Georgia can be quite proud of. Um, perhaps you can give us a, a walk through uh, the peer support movement and the, and the wellness movement now that has emerged from it. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. But before I get started, let me first reach out to Mrs. Carter and thank you for the opportunity that you allow this uh, symposium to take place here at the Carter Center. I had the opportunity tonight to uh, shake the hand of former President Jimmy Carter, which indeed was an um, insightful event for me. Uh, and you have to realize, you're talking about a person who uh, had given up on living and uh, was hopeless and thought my life would end in the parks um, with a brown paper bag in my hand, lying on the cardboard. But I sit before you today with the credential ITE, which is to say I'm the evidence that recovery works. So I say to you, Mrs. Carter, and to Tom, <laughs> and also to the Carter Center donors uh, and the guests, and of course to my peers from the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, my peers from the PAMI Council, and of course, um, other stakeholders groups uh, that have come, members that have come out tonight. I really appreciate uh, you being here, uh, especially to hear from this panel of experts. <laughs> uh, but what I wanna do is do a flip from what you've heard already. As much as Tom has given you the highlights of uh, what's wrong, uh, John has also talked about the history of Georgia and then Andy has indicated some of the things that he has noticed across the nation. But I look for, we look at it, and I say we, I'm talking about the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network. I'm talking about consumers of mental health services here in the state of Georgia. We see out of crisis an opportunity. We see opportunity. Uh, this idea of leadership uh, that was alluded to earlier, we say nothing about us without us. And I think the state of Georgia has failed to recognize the leadership that it has in the consumers that are receiving services here in the state of Georgia. We all know that one out of four families are impacted by mental illness. But let me just give you a history of the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network. One of the greatest strengths that we in Georgia have or is the public-private um, partnership between the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network and the state of Georgia. And of course, the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network is a, a statewide consumer organization here. Um, the relationship we have with the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities has fostered a relationship whereby we have worked, despite the inadequacies of what's here in the state, we have worked tirelessly to grow and to become internationally recognized a peer support movement here in the state of Georgia. So let me just give you a recap of some of the great things that have been taking place 
here in Georgia that very seldom gets the highlight of the front page or anything else, but certainly uh, says to you how important or what roles we've taken as individuals living with mental health diagnosis to foster a relationship not only with the state, but with other uh, stakeholders, both private and public, and to use our expertise in fostering growth here in the state of Georgia. I think one of the things that we can look at uh, from the past is to say that perhaps the leadership in Georgia didn't foresee the influx of people into this beautiful state of opportunity. And so therefore, did not plan uh, accordingly to be able to address the needs of those people who are coming into the state. And again, one in four people are impacted by mental illness. 10 years ago, the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network applied for and received a federal grant. It's called the Statewide Consumer Networking Grant. And this grant was from the federal government and it allowed us, the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, uh, to establish what's now known as the Certified Peer Specialist Program. Now, the good thing about this is that the state, first of all, in the relationship, promised to support and fund the project if we got it off the ground. Well, the fact of the matter is, we got it off the ground and they continue to support it. We now have over 700 consumers of mental health services trained with over 500 certified peer specialists that have been able to receive that certification. And we bring a unique lived experience perspective to our mental health system, thereby having a unique ability to connect with and link with peers assisting them to set life goals and moving forward with lives of meaningful purpose of their choosing. One of the great things that grew out of this was the certified peer specialist ability to build Medicaid for the services. Now these services include peer support, assertive community treatment teams, and community service individuals. Now this is both in the public and in the private uh, provider settings. Certified peer specialists also serve unique roles and projects that the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network has been able to bring forward due to this public-private partnership with the state. This includes, but is not limited to, peer mentoring, the peer mentoring project, where two certified peer specialists work in regional hospital areas to link, and cons link with <laughs> consumers transitioning into the community and supporting natural types of supports in community settings. This also includes facilitators of double trouble in recovery. <coughs> double trouble in recovery is a 12-step model recovery program for people who are duly diagnosed. There was a time in the past when people thought that mental health and substance abuse were entirely different, but now we know they feed off of each other. Okay, so the support is provided before and after the DTR meetings. Also, coordinators and directors of the Self-Directed Recovery Project, which has trained thousands of consumers in developing a wellness, action, uh, wellness recovery action plan, better known as the RAP, RAP for Work, and Psychiatric Advanced Directives. The Statewide Peer Wellness Initiative Project, which has trained hundreds of people in mind, body, and spirit wellness. Because in 2006, the National Association of State Mental Health Programs Directors discovered that the head was attached to the body. <laughs> and finally, realized that we were whole people. So 
Our new peer support and wellness center that's located in Decatur, Georgia, is a unique project that is staffed by certified peer specialists who support people with three respite beds up to seven days or seven nights who need 24-hour supports. It's an alternative to hospitalization. A 24-7 warm line to provide peer supports over the phone and day wellness activities for people who wish to move forward in their lives, supported by peers and certified peer specialists utilizing the intentional peer support model created by Sherry Mead. This is a unique program in Georgia, one of its kind, but one we would like to see on every street corner or in every region, whichever comes first. We're optimistic that during this time, a few other things have happened as well. For the first time in the history, consumer stakeholders have gotten together, mental health stakeholders have gotten together to forge programs or to work together for programs that we can all work toward and agree upon. We're not as in silos as before, but in fact are working hand in hand to create an environment that will support recovery here in Georgia. Understand also that the certified peer specialist model uh, training has been duplicated throughout 26 states. And the beauty of it is that Medicaid uh, pr uh, provide providers with an opportunity to build for the services that we offer. Again, nothing about us without us. We ask only to sit at the tables with those creating uh, the policies that will impact our lives. We only ask in that we be considered in helping to support and plan the projects that we feel that would benefit us because we are the experts. We know exactly what we want, we know what we need, and we know what doesn't work. And if ever is a time to listen to the experts, it's now. Because what Georgia has the opportunity of doing now is creating a model of recovery here in this state that can be used as a model throughout this nation. One that says, despite the limited funding that we have here in the state of Georgia, we believe in recovery for everyone. We believe that we are not, first of all, diagnoses, but are people like everyone else, people looking forward to engaging in the community and living the life of their choosing. Again, it's an opportunity for Georgia to speak loud and clearly that recovery for everyone is possible, no matter what the deficit is monetarily, but that the will of the people here in Georgia is to create an environment that supports the needs of people who are willing to take personal responsibility for their wellness. Therefore, limiting the number of hospital beds needed. Uh, also, uh, decreasing the population in jails. Also, in decreasing the number of people who are being uh, in county jails being housed without any medication of treatment. So we ask, the public to join us in creating an environment whereby we can foster relationships with the legislators to make sure that what we put together is something that will stand and will create an opportunity for Georgia to shine in the, these desperate times. And thank you. Thank you to all our panelists. Uh, we'll be getting the questions from you all in just a moment. But while we're waiting for them, I'd like to uh, go back to, to you for a moment, Charles. Uh, you're a person who has seen both sides of the system um, uh, as a recipient of services and a provider of services. 
And I'd like to hear more from you about um, the more that people, what, what are those active ingredients that, that do lead to recovery in, in your view? Actually, there are five key recovery concepts for those who choose to engage in, in, uh, in, in recovery. First, there has to be some essence of hope. Whether it's embedded inside or whether it's an opportunity to see someone who flew over the cuckoo's nest and realize that if he could fly over the cuckoo nest, so can I. Personal responsibility. If I'm willing to work toward what I want my life to look like, then I have to take some actions. Some actions maybe for the first time. And it may not be those actions that I'm accustomed to. I may be afraid to take those actions. But unless some action is taken, nothing is going to happen. It takes education. Education to realize that we're more than a diagnosis. There are opportunities out there. There are supports in place that can help us to get beyond this stigma of diagnosis and learn to live in the community um, without posing any threat to the general public. Also, it comes with self-advocacy. George, the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, along with the PAMI Council and the Georgia Advocacy Office, has been uh, shouting from the rafters this need for people to stand up and to suit up and to show up and let their needs and their rights be known. And fifthly, there has to be support. Not so much monetary support, but the support of family, uh, peers. Uh, we would love to have the support of our providers, but that's not always the case. Because if we get well and stay well, some of them may be out of business. But <laughs> it's an opportunity to foster relationships where we're all working on one accord, and that is for the well-being of the individual that's being served. Great. Thank you. Uh, Andy, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, active ingredients of a different kind for system reform that you've seen. What, what have you seen as some of the key elements that have helped states um, despite big challenges? And, and we, we need to be honest about that. These challenges mm -hmm. are real and they're significant. Yeah. Um, <coughs> It's a tough question. But I, I think um, first you've got to get rid of the silos in which uh, services are provided. There needs to be some kind of cross, there needs to be cross-agency coordination of services. Um, there needs to be, there need to be a full array of, of the kinds of recovery-oriented services that Charles was talking about. Uh, case management is key. Uh, just to coordinate all the services that could be out there. Uh, and again, it's case management that, that needs to be guided by the recovery principles, individualized, uh, with real input from consumers. Um, there needs to be a real emphasis on evidence-based practices. Uh, and that, that goes... Uh, could you define that a little bit? Some of our audience might not be familiar with that. Well, evidence-based ba evidence practices are practices that have been uh, proven through um, research to work. I mean, it's, I'm not an expert in... in the, but that, I think that's the real layperson's mm -hmm. definition, this layperson's definition of it. That have been proven to work, and if certain particular um, principles are followed, there's a, it's called a fidelity model. That's, that's got to be part, and each type of, of uh, evidence-based practice 
has its own list of, of fidelity elements that need to be part of it. If you, if you veer from the, the crucial elements, the results won't be good. Uh, so that supportive, ho well, supportive housing is one type of um, evidence-based practice, I think. Um, act, assertive community treatment is a key evidence-based practice, um, which involves teams of, of professionals providing, not, not, not solely professionals, but a, an array of providers providing services to individuals at a, a reasonable case student uh, case ratio so that individualized services can be provided. People that go out to the community, to, to the person's home or wherever to provide the services and don't require a person to come into the office. Um, services, uh, peer support is a big part. Do, do your peer support, supporters, uh, are they part of an ACT team? Just some are. Some. That's a key element, I think, in, in the ACT teams that I have seen. Um, Act to assertive community treatment. Assertive community treatment. Um, that, and, and assertive community treatment, I think, has worked particularly well for, it, it's 24-7. It can be available when you need it, as you need it, um, and as often as you need it. And it's not, I mean, not everybody needs assertive community treatment, but it is, it is a level of intensity that's particularly important um, for people with the most, most uh, intense needs, and that is often people who have been stuck in hospitals for years and years, or, or, or in prisons for years and years, uh, who, whose only reason for being stuck is that there weren't the, the support services in the community. Again, supportive housing is, is just vital uh, as, as, as a key component of any right. good mental health system. Great, thank you. Uh, John, uh, we had a question from the, the audience uh, that if, if more money was made available from transitioning from hospital to community, uh, what would be the risks of actually worsening <laughs> the situation for consumers during that transition period? That, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think uh, some funds do need to be <coughs> devoted to, to addressing the immediate health and safety issues that exist in the hospitals. And it's estimated in the last 10 to 12 years over between 100 million and 130 million dollars uh, of Georgia's money has been taken out of the hospitals and most of it didn't wind up in the community programs. I think uh, one of the things that the state of Georgia needs to do is put some of its money back into the service system. You know, if somebody paraphrase somebody lose a million here, a million there, and pretty soon you've got understaffing everywhere. I think that needs to be addressed. Indeed. Thank you. Um, to the uh, panel, we've got a question from the floor. Uh, there are shortages of providers of all types in, in this state, but not only this state, uh, and particularly providers for specialized populations, such as children and adolescents and older adults. Uh, what kind of steps do you think need to be taken in workforce development at this stage? It's a tough one. Anybody want to try to take a shot at that one? I mean, it's my experience that if you put out the money, they're going to come run it. Uh, 
I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not an expert, but I mean, in other states that I have had ex have experience in, I said, oh, there's nobody, there's nobody out here who does supportive housing. Well, all of a sudden, the state is putting out uh, requests for proposals for supportive housing providers. Here they come. Uh, and I think the same can happen with any, any uh, level, any type of service. If I could just add to that, sure. one of the things Georgia did years ago was uh, in recognizing the fact that they couldn't recruit the kinds of diversity of professionals that they needed in the public service system, they created a stipend program. Mrs. Carter, it may have been partly on uh, Governor Carter's watch. I can't recall the exact dates. But the idea there was that take a young person who wanted to go, not always young, to medical school, to become a psychiatrist, to go to graduate school, to get an advanced degree in psychology, social work, or to go to nursing school. The state of Georgia paid for that education with the requirement that when the, once the person completed and got their degree, they would come back and serve a comparable period of time for however many years they were getting educated. They would serve uh, in the state system. They get paid, they got a real salary, honest salary for it. But it made a tremendous difference uh, in, uh, in generating a cadre of a diverse professional group who eventually dedicated several years of their lives to, to public service. I think that's a great point. Charles, do you want to add to that? Uh, one thing that's taking place here in the state of Georgia is that um, senior citizens are getting involved in certified peer specialist training, thereby uh, providing support to persons who are living in, in, in those type dwellings. But let me also go back uh, to the issue of housing. Uh, Georgia lacks housing. Uh, that is one of the contributors, I think, of why we have so many people hospitalized. There is a, um, a, a movement to get people from the hospitals into the community, but if you don't have the housing available for those persons to go into and live, then you have a problem. I do know that um, Baltimore, Maryland has a program whereby um, in uh, high-rise homes, uh, some consumers are allowed to earn stipends that don't impact their social security, don't impact their, um, their rent subsidies, and they're able to provide supports to persons who don't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily have those supports. But it also creates an environment where persons providing those services can earn some extra money and can also assist with the well-being of persons that are living in the high rises, so. Great, thank I, you. Uh, yeah. Just follow up on that in terms of the housing how, how other states have gone about um, dealing with this housing shortage issue. Uh, several states, at least uh, there are about 15 states, have done what's called, have done their own uh, bridge housing vouchers. Usually you, you think of the housing voucher as a federal voucher that's given to a person for, for, uh, to, pay, to help pay their rent, subsidizes a good, about 70% of their rent in the community. Well, there, you may have also heard about the long waiting lists for HUD vouchers over the years. This is easing up now um, more recently, but it's, there's still a waiting list. While many states have done these temporary bridge vouchers where um, they will give a voucher to, a, just like the same kind of voucher you get from HUD, they will give a voucher to designated population, people who meet certain criteria, and they can live, they have their apartment in the community, and 
the voucher stays in effect while the person waits for, uh, for the HUD voucher, voucher to come through. And this has proven immensely successful. New Jersey has one that its mental health department um, operates. I think Illinois also has a mental health department voucher specifically geared to for people who are in institutions waiting for discharge. Other states have their, their uh, equivalent of your uh, Department of Community Affairs uh, have the same kinds of state vouchers to fund housing. The, the, the other beautiful thing about these vouchers is they're easy to get started. You're, you're not talking about big development of uh, capital costs to develop a new building. You're just talking about give a person some money for rent. And um, it can happen quickly, it can happen cheaply, and it can be very effective. I do want to go back to the, um, the question on, on training for just a moment, because I think it's one of those questions that perhaps does not get enough uh, public um, uh, exposure. The average age of a psychiatrist in America is 57. Um, there was a time during the height of the community mental health movement that training was a core component of that movement. And those of us in this audience that um, are of the boomer generation most likely had some or all of our uh, professional education paid for, generally by the National Institute of Mental Health under a variety of different kinds of training grants for which you had obligations, as John talked about here in the state. The federal government got out of the business in the early 90s. So we're moving on pretty close to two decades where there has not been a significant investment in training mental health professionals in this country. And we are an aging workforce. And we're an aging workforce, particularly in services to older adults where we're facing a tremendous um, pent up demand that's gonna hit us pretty hard over the ne next decade. So this is a real uh, crisis in the making in the country and, and it is gonna be incumbent on us to start thinking about how are we gonna get the kind of people we need uh, with the kinds of training that are gonna be necessary uh, for the services that, that um, uh, we're facing, service demands we're facing over the next uh, recent decades. It's gonna be a, a real challenge. Uh, there is a report that was produced um, and funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Services Administration called the Annapolis Coalition Report that took a hard look over several year period of all the core uh, professions in uh, mental health it's available online and you can take a look at it. And for those of you who do advocate, um, this is one area that, um, that probably should be looked at and there's, uh, there's some stuff around that can help you to do that in a very informed way. It's the Annapolis Coalition and you can Google it and easily get to it. Another question from the audience, a good one. Um, what can family members do to ensure their loved ones are being cared for properly? Tough one. Hmm. Um, um, from my perspective, it would be um, essential that family members get involved um, and educate themselves about treatment protocol. Um, for instance, um, for a long time, um, providers and professionals have established what our treatment plans would be. And as a result, um, some of us have failed at meeting the demands of someone else. Uh, therefore, we weren't kept in the loop in terms of no one asked us what we wanted to do. It, it was just decided what we should look like once we're in the recovery uh, model. But uh, I think families should ensure that 
uh, any treatment plans that are formulated or plans that, in fact, the uh, Consumer Mental Health Services has, in fact, um, agreed that this is something that they want to do. Uh, one of the motivating factors behind that is uh, the incentive. If it's something I truly want to do, then I'm going to work toward doing that, as opposed to uh, being forced to comply with uh, what's being uh, expected of me. I think families also um, can um, educate themselves by attending forums of this kind, by using the web, um, coming out to some of the uh, trainings that the Georgia Health Consumer Network has available, attending some of the um, advocacy meetings uh, that um, the Georgia Advocacy Office has in the community, and also um, just uh, becoming a part of um, the uh, listserv at the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network. Great. John? I could just build on, on what Charles has just said, which I agree with wholeheartedly. I, I, I think that what families can also do, and I think what the, Georgia's public <clears throat> system of care for people with mental illnesses, developmental disabilities, addictive disorders, needs to have is some sort of independent oversight of what takes place with our clients. The reason I say that is that some percentage of the people who are served in the public system are especially vulnerable uh, to abuse or neglect because of their disabling conditions. And while my own experience has been that the overwhelming majority of people who work in public services are good, well-trained, and compassionate people, uh, there's always going to be a rotten apple and then sometimes if you get a few of those rotten apples in a hierarchy, <clears throat> things don't surface the way they should. And I think some, it's an overworked term today, but some oversight transparency, some independent person, agency is required to have the authority to see what is going on for respect people's privacy and confidentiality, but to look into things and to periodically make reports about what they find. And whenever necessary, to have the authority and the guts to speak their truth to power to get things corrected. Thank you all. We've talked a lot about um, the necessary necessity of, of housing and supported housing in communities, and I think no one would argue uh, against that. Um, what do you see in the in the near future for more uh, supported employment uh, and more emphasis on employment and in some innovations on employment? Anybody? Well, the Georgia Health Consumer Network is. Uh, partnering with the state, the Bay of Health and Developmental Disabilities, in providing training for certified peer specialists, for persons living with a mental health diagnosis to be able to go to work on providing support services to those persons who are still receiving uh, services, um, mental health services. Uh, we would like to um, ensure that at every level of um, provider services, there is a certified peer specialist that's there. Uh, in emergency rooms, perhaps to uh, do some backup and support during a crisis situation when people show up there. Uh, also, um, in, um, in integrated care, um, 
because in the rural areas, there's a lot of stigma attached to going to the mental health system for services. And so therefore, uh, to eliminate some of that stigma, if that was integrated care, no one would truly know why you were there to see the doctor in the first place. And therefore, people would be more ready to step forward and get the treatment they need. Also, in, um, in being a part of the centralized um, government in mental health, uh, opportunities to um, uh, help um, direct policy or uh, implement policy. Uh, there's a host of things that certified peer specialists can do. Uh, the only requirement to uh, be a certified peer specialist is that you have a mental health diagnosis and have a GED or high school education, which is most inclusive. And a two-week training, of course, whereby upon um, completing the training and um, passing the test, you have a Georgia certification. Um, we um, are the largest um, pr provider server, uh, Georgia Health Consumer Network, um, in the nation. We, we hire more certified peer specialists than any agency in the nation right now. And that's a shame in as much as based on the size of our budget. But we would like to um, encourage other providers to uh, make use of our expertise and not only that, but incentive that we have to go to work and um, not necessarily prove anything, but uh, provide services that we know uh, have worked and to model recovery. Right. It's, it's interesting. Most of the surveys that I've seen of, of, of consumer attitudes and, and preferences, uh, employment is at the top of the list. Right. Yeah. Want a job, um, a house, and friends in the community. Sound familiar? I think most yeah. of us would uh, argue for that. Um, and, and it really, uh, I mean, it's uh, the old way of sheltered workshops or paying a lot of money, a lot of state money for day programs where people just sit around and, and don't, many people just don't like. Uh, I mean, they just, these are things of the past, really. Um, yeah, it seems that programs like the Village in Los Angeles, uh, that's uh, operated by the Mental Health Association of Los Angeles, uh, is one of those programs that take people who are experiencing significant mental health challenges uh, and getting them in progressively uh, more challenging employment, employment that has real futures to it, where people can grow, uh, where they can find what you talked about, Charles, uh, so well a few moments ago, the meaning and purpose in their life, which is absolutely what all of us seek. Um, any more that you all know about, like the village, uh, that, that take that employment issue very seriously and work hard to, to get people in progressive employment, uh, not just sort of maintenance employment to keep somebody off the street. Yeah, we'll think about that one a little bit, but it, I think it's important that we, uh, as we, as we look at stable housing, we've got to pair it with employment. Uh, because that, that certainly adds to the enrichment of the recovery process. Here's another great question from the audience. Does the cycle of bad to better and back again correlate with the economic uplifts and downturns? Great question. You try it, John? Uh, I, I think it does uh, to a degree, not, not entirely. I think uh, when you have enlightened leadership in various positions, even if the economy goes bad, you can make progress. Uh, it's that, that vision of leadership. 
which includes uh, being clear about what the consumers want, safe place to live, a job, an education, family and friends, and so on. So I think there is that cycle. I think many of the better times have <coughs> succeeded despite an economy that may have dipped for a while because of multi-year implementation plans uh, that everybody bought into. Uh, a multi-year plan is practical because you can't fix things overnight. You have to plan it over time. But there's another side to that which I want to emphasize to people. In, the, in Georgia, the, the legislature can only appropriate money on a year-to-year -year basis. And our elected uh, legislators have, are elected for two-year terms. And our governor is elected for a four-year term. We need a way to bridge annual budgets and elected officials. Uh, the budget is annual, and elected people come and go. But the people who need services are with us all the time. And the services they need ought also be there all the time. That's the value of a multi-year approach that everybody buys into. Any other thoughts on that? That, that is an a, a issue around the reconciliation of cycling. Yes. Um, uh, good times, bad times, how do you level off over time uh, so that uh, periods like this one can be smoothed out a bit more? Charles, you had something? For those of us who've been in the mental health system for a while, uh, we have um, learned to be resilient. Despite what's happening in the economy, we've learned to uh, make use of, of what we have. But the general population, uh, based on the current economic situation, some of whom are entering mental health services for the first time, the thing that they have that we didn't have at that time is that we didn't have um, supports uh, from uh, peer supporters to, to declare that everyone could recover and to show us the way. <coughs> Now the mental health system has those people in place to engage those first-time uh, persons who are coming in for service for the first time to give them some feel of um, the remarkable gift we have to share with each other and to um, in, in, instill in them this hopefulness that they too can recover and get on with their lives. Because we're seeing, um, as you well know, a lot of people who are seeking services and uh, who are caught up in a lot of despair with the loss of job uh, and all kinds of issues, homes, and, and, and so we're just here. To, we're happy we're in place to embrace those people when they enter the system to let them know it's not the end of the road but could be a beginning journey for them. Do, you, uh, do peer specialists go into the hospitals at all and work with uh, people there, helping them transition through the community? We do. We have what's called the peer mentoring program where we have two um, certified peer specialists who assist people in the transition to the community. But one of the things that is causing a problem, again, is housing, mm -hmm. um, getting people into suitable housing, not in, um, what do you call them? Um, um, I don't want to say old folks' home, for lack of a Personal better. Personal care. Personal care homes. <laughs> <laughs> because... <laughs> 
Nothing wrong with <laughs> I didn't want to use that word, y'all. But um, thank you. I appreciate it. In, in my, in our opinion, that's not suitable placement. But for the sake of getting someone out of the hospital, it is. And even though there have been lawsuits brought in um, the state of New York that said that's not a suitable uh, placement, we continue to do it. So. I have a great segue question that came in from uh, the audience. Uh, if community-based programs are the way to go, then how can we best create linkages between inpatient and outpatient care programs? You're getting into that a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. Any other thoughts? You guys uh, anticipated the question. <laughs> you, I, uh, well, one thing that can really help is involving not only peer specialists, community providers, uh, people who have real knowledge of what's in the community in the discharge planning process, not mm -hmm. leaving it to hospitals and hospital staff who oftentimes, more often than not, don't know what's out there, don't know, uh, don't have a concept of what supportive housing, for example, can provide for an individual. They can just, they often take the view of, oh, this guy's been in the community and he's Failing, he's failed, he's gonna fail again, he's just gotta stay right where he is. Well, the reason he's so-called failed is because he was dumped into a personal care home without any kind of uh, support services instead of being um, provided the services that he really needed. And uh, experience has shown that uh, oftentimes, more often than not, community providers are the ones who have that uh, knowledge base and hospital staff does not. And there's no buy-in from um, hospitals to um, promote recovery. I mean, the release, they're done. But if there were some sort of incentive to um, engage them to be more mindful of what it takes to um, do well in the community, they may be more interested in making sure that plans were in place that was really going to uh, create an opportunity for that person to recover and stay out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I believe in Georgia, the authority already exists at the state level to direct hospital administrators to coordinate everything with community providers and through contractual arrangements with community providers to insist that they coordinate things with the hospitals. And uh, there's bottom line money there and jobs at stake. Do what the you're told to do, and also do what the contract requires. And so you make coordination, communication, an absolutely vital function. One very tangible thing you can do then is every time somebody has to be admitted to a hospital, hopefully it's not that much, at the time of admission, there's someone from the community staff with the client, and you start planning the discharge of the new admission from day one between the hospital providers and the community providers with the input of the consumers and the family members. It's done in some model programs throughout the country. It can be done in Georgia. And often uh, in, in many supportive housing programs, a person has, uh, needs hospitalization for, uh, is in an acute care crisis. Mm -hmm. They'll hold on. To, he's not going to lose his his, his house. Right. That's his. It's his apartment. He's got a lease, and the servant, the, the provider, makes a commitment to um, to stay with that person, and that also helps in terms of making sure that that hospital stay is as short as possible. Right. Indeed, 
Um, continuity of care, I think, has been implied throughout uh, the evening in a number of different questions in different ways. Um, what are, where does the glitch happen? Where does it start to come apart? John, you say that the, the law allows for it. Um, um, it it's, uh, this is a, an oversimplification, but it's a leadership issue. It, it's related to a vision. Get clear about your vision, about where people ought to be served first and best, and you recognize that from time to time they, you can't have the ideal, so you just insist that there be a coordination and a continuity. People should not be allowed to fall through the cracks. It, it's doable. It mm -hmm. just requires somebody to say, do it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, another question uh, from the audience. Why do hospitals like Georgia Regional have a closed door policy whereby family members and caretakers are forbidden to see the conditions of where their loved ones are hospitalized and being treated. Hospitals that have a more open door policy have a much better environment and treat both the patient and family with higher levels of respect and dignity. Can this be changed? Thoughts? I didn't know it was closed door and it shouldn't be. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. Indeed. All right. Uh, <laughs> open the doors. Um, last question. Actually, I think they should close the front door and open the back door. <laughs> I think you've been saying that all night, Andy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one last question uh, we have time for, and uh, I ask this with some reluctance. Um, uh, what level of cooperation do you expect to uh, uh, receive with insurance companies and the service system? Maybe I'll retract that question. Uh, it's time to go. The, une <laughs> the uneasy laughter. Anybody? Um, we will end on uh, that note. <laughs> I think what, we, uh, what we're saying here is that uh, there may be some issues um, in insurance coverage, and getting health care reform has been a little difficult to begin to clarify yeah. that. Well, if we did have... Uh, Healthcare reform, in one of in one of its present uh, iterations before the houses of Congress, it would put a uh, an obligation on insurance companies to provide the level of services to people with mental health needs. Same with people with regular health needs. Well, we'll remind the audience too. We have some good news on that. Mental health parity did pass last year. Uh, the regulations are being implemented now, uh, but unfortunately that only covers those people who have insurance. Uh, and we have that huge gap of people who don't, and we seem to have lost a little impetus on the movement towards fixing that, but that certainly is, uh, that, that speaks to certainly the issue of coverage and access to care that uh, I think that question was really intended to get at. Uh, we've got a partial fix, but it's a long way from a, a complete fix. We'd like to thank the panelists for their contribution this evening. We'd also uh, like to thank all of you for your participation and wonderful questions. We'd also invite you to visit the Carter Presidential Museum and Library, uh, which has been completely redesigned uh, and renovated 
just opened on October 1st. It's a real different museum if you haven't been there. Uh, very exciting and particularly bring young people. It's much more interactive and there's a large focus on the post-presidency years as well. So both the presidential years and the post-presidency, we certainly encourage you to come. Our next program in the Conversations of the Carter Center um, a series takes place on March 10th and join us for a conversation led by Paul Collier, who's an award-winning author of books such as The Bottom Billion War and Wars, Guns, and Votes. He'll be joined by several Carter Center Peace Program directors for a closer look at the impact of elections in Africa and what is needed to make democracy hold in developing countries. You can make your reservations online at www.cartercenter.org slash conversations, rather. <laughs> Maybe we got some conver conversions tonight. Uh, you can also sign up to receive emails about upcoming events at the Carter Center in the lobby tonight or online at any time. We thank you all again and good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.